So this evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of wise vulnerability. And I'd like to begin with an excerpt from one of the discourses. It said, a tango within, a tango without. People are entangled in a tango. Gotama, I ask you this, who can untangle this tango? The Buddha answers, a person established in virtue, developing discernment and mindfulness, ardent and clear, they can untangle this tango. Those whose passion, aversion and ignorance have faded away, for them the tangles untangled. I think the, these words, you know, we think about it, spoken about, spoken, you know, more than 2,500 years ago, and yet probably as true today and as true in our own experience as it was in that time and in the people's experience of that time, that, uh, you know, that sense of, you know, how did I end up here? You know, how did I end up here in these tangles or this entanglement or, you know, this sense of confusion? I mean, this word passion, I, I, you know, there's the line in here says, those whose passion have faded away. You know, I, I think in, in Western culture that doesn't really sound like a very attractive prospect, you know. We, we don't want to become sort of you know, insipid, lukewarm human beings. But it, it's interesting the way that passion is used in, in two different ways in the discourses. You know, on one level, it, it's used as a very wholesome quality. On another level, it's used as a more unwholesome quality. As a wholesome quality, you know, that it's so much encouraged, and this came up in a discussion the other day, so much encouraged and actually really seemed to be pivotal to, to have a, you know, a very deep sense of enthusiasm in this practice. To, to this word ardency is a very powerful word, you know, which you know, really has passion at its heart. But it's also used in a, in a sense of the unwholesome passions, you know, the, the passions of, of craving, you know, the passions of addiction, the passions of infatuation and enchantment, which is how it's used in this particular bit. It's not asking people to become insipid. It's looking at the passions that bind us to tangles. I think when we look outwardly at the world around us, and I'm sure this was also true 2,600 years ago, we, we see a lot that is really lovely, that is inspiring. We see generosity, we see selflessness, we see that which is beautiful. And yet the tangles are really quite unmissable, aren't they? the way that countries and faiths and communities and societies and families and relationships are so divided by, by fear and by mistrust and by ill will. We, we cannot help but be aware of the levels of cruelty and, and ignorance and conflict that really do impact the lives of so many and when we look closer to home, when we look at our, our own lives, 
at our own experience, we, we also see much that is lovely and much that is joyful and, and, and easeful. And, and sometimes we're almost taken aback by unexpected moments of kindness and generosity and, and care. But it's probably also true that we are not strangers to what it feels like to be really caught sometimes in historical arguments and conflicts and um, what it feels like to be, be caught in, in, in sort of cycles, relational cycles of, of ill will and harshness both inwardly and outwardly. And we know that these, these patterns truly do undermine our own well-being. And we're familiar with the ways too, probably, the ways in which our, our deepest aspirations and our deepest values and intentions are so easily sabotaged, seem to be so easily sabotaged or, or even smothered by some of these cycles of habit and fear and confusion that, that it's easy to become forgetful. And it, it's, it's all too easy, it seems, to, to lose touch with, with the generosity and the understanding, the kindness and compassion that, that most of us, I think probably all of us, really do treasure so deeply. And those moments of forgetfulness or those times of forgetfulness can, can easily lead to a, a kind of despair or a sense of impossibility or a sense of of hopelessness around change. But when we look closely at this forgetfulness and remembering, when we look closely at the tangles, I, I think we, we see that there's almost a, a kind of timelessness to the propensity of, of the human mind to create struggle and pain. It's kind of perverse, isn't it? Um, but, but it's actually what brings us here. It's what brings most of us to practice and to this path is to really begin to look at the ways that we might untangle the tangles. Really realizing that the tangles are not static conditions, that they are something that are, are created and knotted and tangled, you know, over and over, moment to moment. We, we, we come here actually looking for the ways to live the what life that we would wish to lead, you know, that is really imbued with, with kindness, with, with a sense of freedom, that's a life that's free of conflict, a life that's free of ill will. Um, we, we come here often looking for the ways to be the kind of person, actually, that we would aspire to be. You know, a fully embodied human being, someone who is, has, has at the foreground of their, their mind, their capacities for creativity, for insight, for generosity. But I think for this to be so, for this to be so, in a way, this is the promise of this path, by the way. The, the Buddha certainly didn't encourage anybody to undertake this path or this practice as a means of staying the same. Um, or as a means of simply being more intimately acquainted with their, their own disasters and better at observing them. 
Um, it is actually, you know, actually the heart of this path is one of quite a radical transformation and offering indeed, I think, quite a radical sense of possibility for us as human beings. But I think for this to be so, we're really asked to, to understand how, how our tangles are created. And when we look at the early teachings, it's so clearly pointed out again and again that pain, struggle, conflict, suffering, these are not predetermined. They are not life sentences. They are not unfortunate accidents that happen to people who haven't tried hard enough. But they have, they have their origins. You know, conflict, struggle, confusion has origins. And it has roots. It has roots in, Ill in the patterns of ill will, the patterns of greed, and the patterns of confusion. They really only ever have uh, distress and, and turmoil as their outcome. I think very few people have good outcomes from ill will. You know, perhaps I'm wrong about that, but uh, you know, I don't think many people have good outcomes from greed and confusion. I suspect this is so. Recently, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, reflecting on, on really what, what underpins our tangles, you know. You know, we, we want to be happy, and yet too often it's not so. We, we long to be peaceful. I, I mean, I, I doubt if anyone came into this retreat longing for agitation. Uh, you know, we, we long to be peaceful, and yet we keep stumbling across this agitated mind, you know. We want to be kind people, probably most of us. And isn't it kind of shocking how those waves of ill will and judgment just suddenly seem to pop out of nowhere, you know? And it's kind of humbling, isn't it? It's, it's, it's sort of humbling. You think, well, gosh, you know, where, where did that come from? You know? um, we want to be clear and steady. And yet, how many times do we have the experience of being somewhat overwhelmed or, or just somewhat lost? So it's a really good question. You know, this is an investigation. It's a really good question to ask. How, do, how does that happen? You know, what is it that creates that kind of dissonance that we end up in places far from where we want to be? We all have, you know, our own personal, our own quite unique stories and histories, I think, to be respected and to be learned from. But I think we can also sense the more universal, the very human story of our, our longings and our tangles that have been reflected in, in, a, in a teaching, in the teaching that John referred to last night, the teaching about dukkha. Is anybody unfamiliar with this word, dukkha? Please don't be embarrassed. Okay. We might translate as messy space. So dukkha describes the full spectrum of human, human experience that is difficult to be with. Okay. I, I've, I've kind of, and, and the, this whole teaching actually has its roots, doesn't it? It's a response to dukkha. 
We can't get away from that. This is a response to dukkha, to trying to understand how dukkha comes into being, you know, how we, how we relate to dukkha, how we grow in, through the medium of dukkha. So this whole teaching has been a response, the teaching of awakening is a response to the, the sense of imprisonment that is found within dukkha. But I'm going to reframe dukkha. And I, I want to reframe it in the sense of the word vulnerability. Hmm? The word vulnerability. That runs, the vulnerability that runs through our personal stories, our, our own lives. The vulnerability that runs through the universal story. The short list. We all have, as part of our lives, a vulnerability to pain, and we're vulnerable to injury. This is written into the fabric of being a human being. We are vulnerable to pain, and we are vulnerable to injury. Written into the fabric of being a human being, there's another vulnerability. We are vulnerable to uncertainty, to change, and to loss. As long as we are identified with a, a sense of self, of I am, we are vulnerable to beliefs in insufficiency, of not having enough, of not being enough. As human beings, we are, we are vulnerable to not being able to control the world of conditions that we live in. And each of these domains of vulnerability has an extended family, many offsprings. And my own sense is that when these core vulnerabilities are not really understood, when they're not uh, recognized, when they're not embraced, when they're not responded to wisely and compassionately, that these vulnerabilities are instead reacted to and actually lead to the arguments and the tangle and the distress and the confusion that we can and do experience. We, we actually probably all to some extent recognize that the, the way that we can extend such heroic efforts, such heroic efforts to build a world and a self on the grounds of denial. Isn't that amazing? You know, we have an almost a developed expertise in this, you know, trying to build a world and a self on the grounds of denial, the denial of vulnerability. We try to distance ourselves and to protect ourselves from these areas of vulnerability. And, and so we, we develop a kind of way of being, of sort of hypervigilance, you know, and fear, as long as we are in denial of these vulnerabilities. But when they are understood and embraced and responded to skillfully, these same domains of vulnerability are actually what opens the door to transforming understanding and compassion that actually really serves to untangle the tangle. And enables us actually to live the compassionate and courageous life that we would wish to live. I think we, we do easily absorb, particularly I think in our culture, we easily absorb the message that vulnerability is weakness. 
We may even absorb the message that vulnerability is a kind of failure. That, and, and, and so are led to kind of seek or, or even, even see as desirable a kind of invulnerability. We may absorb the message that vulnerability leaves us open to being used and exploited and abused by, by others. We might absorb the message that vulnerability tells us that something is wrong with us. So we, we learn many mechanisms, I think, throughout our lives to try and defend and protect and harden ourselves against vulnerability. We learn almost to fear it. And I think that there is a kind of fearful vulnerability. I also think there's a very, a very wise and a very sensitive and wakeful vulnerability. There's a Texan academic called Brené Brown. She, she says, I, I'm a much braver person than I used to be. You can't get to courage without walking through vulnerability. Now, I think as human beings, we very understandably have apprehension and fear around pain and around injury. Physical pain, it's not an easy thing to be with. Illness, the ones that come and go and the ones that don't go away, these are not easy things to be with. Aging, we'd like to think, is a graceful fading into the sunset. (laughs) For most folks, this is not so. It's stumbling from one crisis and catastrophe to the next. Um, Dying, we'd like to have, you know, uh, oh Lord, I can't tell you the, uh, to die well, please, just die however you're going to die without troubling yourself with dying well. I have seen people so burdened by the idea of the right way to die. But it's not easy, is it? it? None of this is easy for us. We, we have apprehensions because we know what emotional pain feels like. You know, we, we know what it feels like to be rejected, to, to be subject to ill will, or to be caught in our own ill will. You know, we, we know how painful is the domain of, of, of judgment and loneliness and anxiety and sadness, all of the emotions that really, really are built into the fabric of being a sensitive, loving, attuned human being. Many of these emotions come with that fabric. Not all of them, but many. We, we, we are apprehensive about psychological pain, about depression, difficult moods, unwelcome thoughts. And when, when we look at what comes with this, this being, a human being, um, we see to, to some extent some of this pain, not certainly not all of it, but some of this pain is actually simply written into the human story. You know, when we look around ourselves here, we, you know, you, you don't imagine there's anyone here who is exempt. You know, who will not age, who will not lose things they care about who will not at times be ill, who will not have their own measure of pain and sorrow and distress in their bodies 
and their hearts and their minds and their lives. And we look around and we see that no one is exempt. But how do we find ourselves responding or reacting? And these are very different things, by the way. How do we find ourselves responding or reacting to this core vulnerability? How easy what is, what is triggered is our patterns of reactivity, aversion, defensiveness, ill will, the, the strategies that we devise to, uh, to, to plan and, and, and to defend ourselves and, and to keep the world at a distance to, or we just get busy. That's our classic response to, to the painful. We just get busy. You know, we, well, sure, if we get busy enough, we'll find a way to fix it. You know, we'll, we'll find a solution or we dissociate. It's another great mechanism, isn't it? Flee into, into fantasy, into distractedness, into numbness, into disconnection. Or we can become this sort of hypervigilant, anxious person, endlessly on alert, you know, for danger and threat and intrusion. We create the other. You know, this seems to hold the power to harm us. And sometimes that other is within ourselves, our own thoughts, our own emotions, our own moods, sometimes our own bodies. Sometimes the other is external. This is, by the way, not to suggest or to imagine that, you know, we live in this totally safe world, you know, that there are threats and dangers we need to discern. I'm much more speaking about this psychological world as a reaction to vulnerability. And here we really see the way that we heap suffering upon the painful, that we pile suffering upon the painful. I think we, you know, this vulnerability, we're vulnerable to change. And, and we learn, actually, at times to fear change, to fear uncertainty, to fear loss, even as we know that we can't find anything or anyone inwardly and outwardly that is, will not change. Unwelcome change, you know, we, this is such a discrepancy thinking, isn't it? Because, you know, intellectually, we all nod so wisely about impermanence, you know. Well, you know, we all agree, you know, nobody here disagrees with the reality of impermanence, do they? And we live as if it's totally a mistake. <laughs> you know, except the changes that we welcome, you know, the end of a root canal is great news, you know? Um, but basically we act as if impermanence is a mistake, you know, or something that really should only happen to other people or, or to things that we don't particularly treasure or delight in or, or hold dear to us, you know. So unwelcome change, we resist and we build defenses and, you know, we can create a wealth of habits and views in an attempt to find some kind of reliability in this world that feels so uncertain. We seek safety even as we know in our bones, even as we know in our bones that our worlds can crumble in a moment. And many of you will have glimpsed that, how your world can crumble in a moment. We don't want to be surprised even 
So, so we try at times to make the world stand still for us through clinging and holding, through trying to find some refuge in knowing, you know, I know you, therefore I don't have to be surprised, you know, or I know, my, I know who you are, I know who I am, I, I know what is beautiful, I know what is ugly, I know what is acceptable, I know what is terrible. We, we, we have so much effort. Imagine if we put the effort into our practice, the same amount of effort into inner development as we put into trying and make our world secure. You know, we'd have a room full of Buddhas, wouldn't we? Just got to let this say. <laughs> we try to create stability and certainty in a world that is unpredictable and uncertain. The, one of the early texts, the Buddha says, you know, it absolutely makes no sense at all that I, who am a changing, fluid, unfolding being, should try and find refuge in that which is also changing. This makes, makes no sense. We, we find ourselves fearing loss, so we hold more tightly. Now, one of the great, you know, one of the great areas of vulnerability, of course, revolves much around having this identification with a sense of who I am, a sense of self. Now, this is something actually, by the way, that is completely illogical to try and find an abiding, independent sense of self. You know, it actually doesn't make any any sense, but that doesn't stop us. So, so we, we, you know, so generally, when when you actually look at a sense of of who I am, write your autobiography. It's about what I cling to, isn't it? You know, you know, I'm a woman. You know, I'm 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 aging. You know, I'm I'm extroverted. I'm introverted. You know, I'm pleasing. I'm not pleasing. But generally, when you look at the bulk of your autobiography. How much of it is actually built around imperfection or a sense of imperfection? Yeah? I'm not good enough. You know? I'm, I'm not lovable enough. I'm not worthy enough. You know? uh, I'm, I'm not admirable enough. You know, I'm not stable enough. I'm not competent enough. How much of our sense of self is actually built around this sense of, of deficit? The, the sense of lack. And, and then what does that do to us? You know, there's a lot of problems with being identified with an I am, by the way. I just want to start pointing out a few of them. Um, it might inspire us to be less identified with the sense of I am. Um, this is like volunteering for suffering, by the way. <laughs> you know, just pick up an I am. That's just like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll suffer, you know, uh, yeah. Why not? You know? So we, we see it how, how much, you know, the, the effect of that identification with the I am, which is generally built around insufficiency, generally built around in, insufficiency and imperfection, has a powerful effect on our life about how we feel compelled to be moving through the world looking to become someone better, you know? looking to become someone more perfect, more lovable, more more able. It's like it's like a hungry heart living a hungry life, which actually doesn't get satisfied. Searching for a sense of sufficiency through what we can become or gain. Another area of our vulnerability is really the fear of being out of control. Um, 
you know, life can feel so challenging and chaotic. And, you know, you come and sit here and you've had a taste of that inner chaos, probably some of you anyway. You know, uh, you know how uncooperative your mind has been? You know, have, you, have you noticed that? It's completely unresponsive to your commands. Hmm? You cannot sit down and say, I'm going to have a really peaceful sit. Yeah? It'll be really calm. In, uh, if you know, it's completely unresponsive, isn't it, to your command system? And, and the, you know, it, it's interesting, in the early teachings, they, they make up this short list of the great fears of a human being. And one of the greatest fears of a human being is the fear of unusual mind states. I don't know what a usual mind state actually looks like. Um, but what we actually experience is so many of our mind states do feel so uninvited, don't they? And actually, if you ever get lost, if you ever get lost in a real psychological or emotional storm, doesn't it just feel out of control? You know, rage or, or fear, anxiety or, uh, you know, panic or, or, or depression, you know, doesn't it just feel like it's completely out of your hands, you know, like it somehow has a life of its own? And, and a lot of our mind states are really uninvited, but it, we don't want this, you know, we want to be a pilot in the pilot in the cockpit, safely navigating our way through this unpredictable world in control of our bodies, in control of our minds, in control of our lives, in control of the world. And then we get so confused and tangled up when somehow the world inwardly and outwardly just doesn't seem to be cooperating with that desire. And what's our response at times? You know, we say, well, this is unfair. Or, or we blame ourselves. Or we, we hold more tightly. Or we build up walls to try and keep, keep the world out. We're so aware that we, we, we are living and are part of a matrix of ever-changing and shifting conditions that change in ways that we can't control even as we skillfully do the best we can, do the, do the utmost we can to, to actually make conditions optimal for ourselves and for others. But we see how much of our response to this changing of world of conditions is an endeavor to manipulate conditions to maximize pleasure and safety and minimize pain and uncertainty. This, this, this human being, this self, is, is a vulnerable being. And we do a lot in our lives, some of it skillful, to protect or even, or other hand, to disguise that vulnerability. But our efforts to find safety through holding and clinging really turn us, I think, into very fearful and very doubting selves, living fearful lives. I think that the teaching of, of the primary teaching of the Buddha, you know, always stress that the greatest peace, the greatest happiness, the greatest effectiveness, the greatest freedom is going to be found through our willingness to meet life as it is. That, that is. that is the heart of it. Through our willingness to meet life as it is, to look at change, to look at uncertainty, to look at pain, to look at unpredictability, and just to look at in the, in the eye and to be able to say, I know you. I, I know you. 
that kind of recognition. The Buddha always taught that our greatest kindness and understanding and compassion is going to be born of our willingness to embrace vulnerability and to know it not as weakness and not as failure, but as the ground upon which our courage deepens and develops. And, you know, perhaps we get a real sense, and I really encourage you to check this out, perhaps we get a real sense of the way that our hearts and lives contract or expand in proportion to our willingness to embrace and meet the actuality of life as it is in this moment. Really ask you to check that out in your experience. The way that our hearts contract or expand in relationship to and proportion to our willingness or unwillingness to meet life as it is in this moment. I find myself, you know, reflecting quite a lot about how what are the other ways of embracing vulnerability other than through fear or, or denial or, or ill will or blame? And, and I really think about the ways in which the, the qualities of, of befriending and kindness, the qualities of, of compassion, the quality of joy and the quality of equanimity are, are really the healers of distress. How in the early teachings, these qualities are really described as being the healers of distress and the healers of fear. <clears throat> and the, the qualities that really allow us to stand in the midst of vulnerability, to stand in the midst of sorrow, to, to stand in the midst of, of loss and uncertainty without being overwhelmed and being able to respond effectively. Perhaps it's possible for us to, to really walk different pathways in response to vulnerability, other than the pathways of, of aversion or trying to control. We could learn to cultivate the capacity we have, actually, to befriend vulnerability. And it seems to me that our capacity to befriend ourselves, to hold ourselves with kindness, is directly related to our capacity to hold vulnerability with kindness. It's good to reflect upon outcomes. We discussed this in my group today. You know, it's good to reflect on the outcomes of the pathways that we follow. You know, this practice is much more than just about watching things. It's about some investigation, developing insight, developing discernment. But it, sometimes it's good to reflect upon the outcomes of aversion and blame, you know, the outcomes of defensiveness and hostility, and how they, they harm our hearts and how they, they disempower us and actually lead to a level of ineffectiveness. And we're almost likely aware of, of, of how automatic reactivity can seem to be to anything that exposes vulnerability. You know, we cruise along just fine, you know, until things fall apart. You know, we cruise along just fine as long as, you know, we're well and we're surrounded by, you know, lovely people, you know, and good weather and, uh, you know, and, and good food and nice experiences. And then we keep bumping up against the walls, don't we? We, we all bump up against the walls. And it, it's often felt to be, to be a threat. And that's when the reactivity gets triggered, isn't it? The, the aversion, this shouldn't be happening. 
you know, that why is this happening to me or how do I make this this different? And we can feel the contractedness, the sort of clenching of the heart in doing that. And we also actually experience the dukkha or the painfulness of the clenching itself. So it's not just that the clenching or the contracting or the reactivity it is a reaction to vulnerability or, or pain. It is actually pain in itself. It's useful to know this. And it's useful to ask ourselves that if we actually know the painfulness of aversion, um, if we know where aversion takes us, if we know that aversion as a defense mechanism is remarkably ineffective, we could ask, why do we resort to it so often? You know, because these are not like new lessons to us, are they? You know, I mean, why, why do we resort to it so often? And, and I think, you know, the habitual nature of it is so embedded and so strong. And, and it is why the teaching of kindness and befriending is so deeply significant and powerful that offers us really a different and a liberating way of inhabiting this vulnerable life and this vulnerable self. You know, and we begin to explore in our own practice and in contemporary mindfulness, this is so built into the training, isn't it? I, I see no bigger step that people make in mindfulness training in whatever setting it's in than that shift from aversion to befriending. I don't think there's one more, more transformative step than this one. Mm-hmm. And it's what we're constantly teaching people to do, isn't it? What we're constantly trying to teach ourselves to do, you know? That, in, okay, the, the ha- habit says turn away, Insight says, turn towards. Hmm. We're constantly teaching ourselves and teaching our others to, to step out of the aversion patterns. But it's not just turning towards in a sort of qualitatively neutral way. You know, and, and we should never underestimate the ways in which this, this attitude of befriending, this attitude of caring, this attitude of affectionate curiosity this attitude of tenderness needs to be embedded within that turning towards. Otherwise, we have only a cold glare of attention that is likely not to be transforming at all. (coughs) We are constantly learning to befriend the enemy. You know, the enemy seems like a very strong word to use, but, but you know, the enemy is what we have created in the other that we fear or that we push away. And this practice is constantly learning to befriend the enemy. That this is a genuine possibility, that our, our happiness, our well-being, our freedom is not reliant upon that ideal moment when all of our enemies have suddenly packed up and gone home. It's, it's in the midst of how we change the other, the other, into, uh, can be embraced with compassion, can be embraced with kindness. In the, the Dhammapada, one of the early teachings of the Buddha, it says, the person who, turn, who fears, fearlessly turns towards the actuality of distress, the origins of distress, 
the ending of distress, and the path leading to its end has found the supreme, the secure refuge here and now where there is an end to all distress. This is what we're learning to do. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, we actually get a sense of how this, of the courageousness of kindness. The courageousness of, of befriending, of turning towards, of not fleeing, because we really see that this is the instruction of aversion, isn't it? The instruction of aversion is run, you know, flee, get away from, distance. So the instruction of this attitude of befriending is, is to stay, be present. But to be present with this attitudinal sense of, of care in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of uncertainty. And I think more and more we get a sense that aversion is really the visible face of, of fear. And kindness and befriending in the midst of fear is what allows aversion and fear to begin to calm and allows us actually to stand in the midst of all things. It doesn't mean that fear doesn't arise. It doesn't mean that anxiety doesn't arise. It does. You know, it does. But we learn actually that we, can, we, can, we don't have to turn that arising into the, the great explosion and the great storm of, of, of helplessness and powerlessness and despair. Actually, what we learn is that we can bend without being broken. We can bend without being broken. Sensitivity actually does have a price. You know, and, and I think we need to be prepared to em embrace that. You know, the development of the sensitivity held within mindfulness practice does mean that we're touched more deeply. You know? It does mean, actually, that we, we feel more deeply, that, that we actually do begin to, to feel more connected, that there's a greater sense of empathy. You know, with, with the world around us and, and with the pain of others. And we, there's much that we sense that, that comes within that empathy field. You know, we, we sense the, the frailty of the body, the mind of confusion, the, the vulnerability that is actually part of every human life. But we learned there's something really important that is let go of in that sensitivity. And that's this tendency to move towards blame. And how often when, when we sense vulnerability or when we sense the difficulties in human life, how easily we're moved into that story of, of whose fault it is. This is an endless story. It's an endless story. Instead, we, we actually find that there's another, there's another way of responding just far more compassionately. Compassion actually rests upon releasing fault-finding. Compassion rests upon releasing blame and being able to, to listen to the cries of the world, to listen to the painfulness, to listen to the sorrow without being overwhelmed. 
I think one of the core vulnerabilities, you know, as I've mentioned, arises around this conviction of our insufficiency that leads us to primarily focus on what is broken and imperfect in, in ourselves and, and in others. And how often this becomes the eyes through which, through which we, we see the world. If you, if you notice that, sometimes how, how much we preference with our attention that which is flawed and that, that, which is, that which is broken or that which is imperfect. And we actually see the way that when, when we look through those eyes, how much joy is leached from our lives. You know, how much joy actually disappears and undermines our sense of possibility and capacity. And we, we really do get a sense that this, this belief in insufficiency is, is a timeless story. Sometimes it's a story that's been told to us about ourselves by others. Sometimes it's a story we tell ourselves so often that we have become the story. You know, we have actually become the story. There is no doubt that as human beings, I think all of us have our flaws. We stumble, we make mistakes, probably more often than we would like. It's also possibly possible that we are all much greater than our flaws and much greater than our imperfections. And this actually, we, we, we learn to actually consider that and to see through different eyes. And one of the eyes, some of the eyes that we're really encouraged to, to see through is through the eyes of appreciative joy. Appreciative joy of others and of ourselves. This is a quality that we nurture in the midst of vulnerability. There's a wonderful Chinese saying that says, you know, that encourages us to write our sorrows in sand and our joys in stone. Very often the other way around, isn't it? To write our sorrows in sand and our joys in stone. I, I think we, we actually undertake this as a practice, you know? It's not an accident, you know? I think we actually undertake this as a training as much as we undertake mindfulness as a training. You know, in, as we go through our day, you know, constantly spotting what is wrong, you know, which we're great at, you know, um, how much do we actually incline the mind towards seeing what is well? Hmm? How much do we do that? You know, when, when, we, when, we, when we, you know, step outside and there's a little bit of rain in the air and we start our grumble, um, you know, how much do we actually really appreciate the, the sensitivity of our feet touching the ground or the touch of the air on our skin, you know? As much as we sort of, you know, grumble at our neighbor's seemingly persistent restlessness, how much do we actually appreciate their, their, their sincerity and perseverance in coming to show up probably in the midst of what's quite difficult? As much as we find ourselves focusing on all of the ways that we, you know, how many breaths we've missed in a row and, you know, and, and you know, how, how many times we became forgetful in our walking periods, you know, how much do we actually say, well, isn't it amazing I'm still here? Isn't it amazing that I'm still showing up, you know? How many times at the end of a sitting or a walking do you actually say to yourself, well done? You know, it doesn't matter how it is, but... 
well done for being here. These are lessons that we learn. We learn, we learn to cultivate that sense of appreciation. We learn to cultivate a sense of coexistence. You know, as much as this pain is existing, here is also, it lives alongside that which is well. This is not a way of trying to deny pain, by the way, but it is a way of, of stopping, of, of, of keeping the mind unclenched, keeping the mind uncontracted to keep that space very, very much open. Equanimity. We learn a lot about this. It's important for everyone who ever works in a caring profession. You know, equanimity is so important as a companion to compassion, so important as a companion to joy. If you, if you in your lives, you work looking after others, you know, how to keep not only the front door open, but the back door open also. You know, how really to stand with poise and balance and confidence in the midst of the difficult, um, knowing that we're never going to be successful in controlling an ever-changing, uns unstable world of conditions. This is the core uh, an insight of equanimity, is that we actually can deeply, radically accept that, you know, that we are never going to be successful in controlling this unstable, unpredictable world of conditions and change. This is where equanimity begins. You know, without that acceptance, uh, we are endlessly subject to being knocked off balance. Not by life, but by our reactivity. If I was truly the pilot in my cockpit, my life would look a lot different than it does. You know, I'd only have nice people, you know, I'd never get ill, I certainly wouldn't age, I'd probably be immortal, you know, and, uh, you know, it, my life would look a lot different, I, I was really the pilot in the cockpit. It's such a relief to give that one up, you know, it's such a relief. And it doesn't mean floundering, it doesn't mean being knocked about by life, because we focus more on developing inner poise and stability than relying upon outer stability for inner poise. It's much more an inside-out, an inside-out journey. The Buddha issued this, in the early teachings, issued this very stark statement. He says, all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory in that they can't be relied upon to deliver happiness or freedom. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent and unstable, and all conditioned phenomena are empty of self. And I think when we hear that, it feels it feels it could could be heard like a very stark statement, you know. It could even be heard as being quite depressing. <laughs> but it could we could, but only from the vantage point of of believing we can make it different and make life, and and control, and exempt ourselves. But we can also perhaps sense the freedom and the liberation held within those those words and absorb it into our being in a way that it's, it's almost the end of, of fear. It's almost the end of fear. This is the life as it is, that we're embracing with kindness, that we're embracing with compassion, that we find joy within, and that we find equanimity and balance in the midst of. It's almost the end of fear, isn't it? 
there would be something quite remarkable to be able to look life, look, look every moment in the eye and to know that so deeply, to know it so deeply that all conditioned phenomena are unsatisfactory and can't be relied upon to deliver happiness or lasting happiness or freedom. That all conditioned phenomena are impermanent and unstable. All conditioned phenomena are empty of self. This is, this is the recipe of, of freedom. This is the insights that really underpin that sense of, of fearlessness in life. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean, you know, we are still vulnerable human beings. We will still age, we will still get ill, we will still mourn our losses, we will still grieve over the loves that we lose. It is not that we cease to feel, in fact, we probably feel even more, more deeply are touched more deeply, but our, our, our domain of responsiveness has grown enormously. That, that instead of being bound to the reactivity, the responsiveness of kindness, the responsiveness of compassion, the responsiveness of appreciation, and the ground of equanimity are available to us. These are our bidings, the place where, where our hearts and our minds truly rest and abide. And, and I think we actually see that this is the journey we're, what, that we're on. That, you know, first we turn towards the moment, and as difficult as that may be, we actually begin to appreciate the vulnerability or the dukkha that is there. Hmm? That it, it's not somebody's fault. Hmm? It is woven into human life. It is woven into human into human life. And rather than following this, this agitation of denial and aversion and pushing away, we actually find there is a different way of being. And this is what we're learning on our cushions. This is what we're teaching. This is what you're teaching your clients and patients, that there is another, another choice here and another pathway that can be walked. And it begins with befriending. It begins with compassion. But it begins with, with understanding and that willingness to, to really look the moment and life in the eye and to be able to say, I know you. I know you. And, and to find the peace within that. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If we take just a moment quietly together and then we will have a, a walking period. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.